Heavenly Father, as we break open your word today, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come to be with us and help us to understand and profit from it. Help us as we look at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah to get a better vision of how you work in the world and of your sovereign grace and mercy, even to people who have sinned and gone a long way from you. We ask that you would bless us now as we consider these things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Today, we come to Genesis 19, and as we said last time, Genesis 18 and 19 form a literary unit in the scripture having to do with the birth of the seed and the destruction of the wicked. These things go together. When God moves in salvation, he also moves in judgment at the same time, and in that way moves history forward. If we were to see a revival in our land, we would probably also see judgments brought against the wicked in our land. And in some ways, the judgments that we're seeing against some segments of our society today are an encouragement that we may be moving into a time of revival. These things go together as God moves in history. As he draws near, he deals with the wicked, and he also revives the righteous and pushes history forward. Last week, we kind of ran out of time as we looked at Abraham's discussion with God, and we need to take a little running start to chapter 19 by reviewing that. So let's look again at the end of chapter 18. And in verse 22, we read that the two men, the two created angels, turned away from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And then there's the long discussion that we're all familiar with. Will God destroy the righteous with the wicked? And the answer to this question is, no, God never destroys the righteous with the wicked. It's sometimes assumed that what Abraham is trying to do is get down to ten people because Abraham knows that Lot and his wife and his two sons and his two daughters, two married daughters and two sons-in-law at least, all add up to a little bit more than ten or at least ten. But that's not the idea. Abraham knows because of what's happened before with Sodom and Gomorrah that this is a final judgment. God is going to come in, he's going to take Sodom and Gomorrah and completely destroy them. And the question is not, does God ever chastise the righteous along with the wicked? If we're experiencing a depression here in East Texas, in Tyler, because of the stupid and sinful policies of wicked people in the world, are righteous Christian people suffering along with that? Well, yes, they are. You see, in history... The righteous do suffer along with the wicked because the roots of the tares and the wheat are interlocked together, and we move in history. But on the day of judgment, on the last day, when the tares and the wheat are separated, the righteous are never punished with the wicked. And Abraham knows that, and that's the question that's being raised here, and God's answer is, no, I never destroy the righteous when I destroy the wicked. Now, God told Abraham if there were ten righteous people there, he would save the wicked as well and give them another chance, give the city another chance. But there weren't. But did God destroy the righteous with the wicked? No, he pulled the righteous out, you see. So the answer is God never destroys the righteous with the wicked. The concern here, you see, is with the righteousness of God and his reputation. And God's reputation and his righteousness are secure because he never destroys the righteous with the wicked. What was the historical situation? Well, reading back in Genesis chapter 14, 
we saw that Chedor Laomer had come in and conquered Sodom. And Abraham had come and delivered Sodom from Chedor Laomer and returned all the goods to Sodom and brought the king of Sodom to Melchizedek. And in all these different ways that the Bible indicates, had preached the gospel to Sodom and given Sodom a second chance. Did they take their second chance? Did they hear the preaching of the gospel from Abraham? No. And so now it's time for final judgment. Now that's parallel to some other things that happen in the Bible. And, and since we're on the subject, let's just make that point and we'll have to move on. When God destroyed Jerusalem in the Old Testament, Nebuchadnezzar came and invested the city. And then the people who were in the city got scared and they let all their slaves go free. See, the Bible had said you're not to keep Israelite slaves indefinitely, but to set them free in the seventh year. And the Jews had not been doing that. But when Nebuchadnezzar came around the city, they all got real serious about the Lord. And they prayed and they let their slaves go free and Nebuchadnezzar went away. And then they took all their slaves back and Nebuchadnezzar came back and leveled the city. When God destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., the Romans came around the city around 66 and 67 and invested the city. And then God called them away and gave them a second chance. And they didn't repent. And so the Romans came back in 69 and 70 and destroyed the city. In the book of Revelation, that's the trumpets. The trumpets are the warnings the first time the city is circled. And the chalices are the destruction the second time the city is attacked. Well, that's parallel to what happens here because the destruction of Jerusalem is always compared to the destruction of Sodom in the Bible. Lots of the same language is used. And here it's the same. The Sodom had already been destroyed once, had been attacked by uh, Chedor Laomer, and God had given him a second chance and he didn't take it. So now it's total destruction. And Abraham knows that. And that's why he argues with God and seeks to understand God's purposes and finds out that God will never destroy the righteous with the wicked. All right, now we come to chapter 19. And there are three themes we want to note and call attention to here. First, there are deliberate parallels in the text between the visit of the three persons to Abraham in chapter 18 and the two people who come to visit Lot in chapter 19. And we'll look at the comparisons and contrasts between those two because they highlight the theology of the passage. Second of all, there are all kinds of parallels to the Exodus. This is one of the versions of the Exodus theme in the Bible. It's kind of an inversion, but there is an Exodus here, you see, and we'll see some of the details of it as we look at the passage. You know that there's an Exodus. Lot and his family are brought out and the city is destroyed. But there are more details than that that come in. And finally, there are a lot of parallels to the flood, especially in the actions of Lot's daughters. After the flood, Noah gets drunk in his tent, and Ham goes into the tent and exposes Noah's nakedness, and there's a judgment scene. After the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot gets drunk in his cave. His daughters go in and expose his nakedness, and although there's no judgment scene, there is a lot of parallels there, and they're deliberate. Also, you remember that Jesus compares the flood to the destruction of Sodom. He says that there will be two people working in the field and one will be taken. And he says it's just like the flood. God put his people in the ark and then destroyed the world. It's just like the destruction of Sodom. God called Lot and his family out and destroyed Sodom. So there are parallels later in the Bible, but there are parallels here. And we want to look at it. So I've called this lecture Flood and Exodus. Flood, Exodus, and Sodom, Genesis 19. All right. 
the passage has four sections. The arrival of the angels, the gospel of the angels preached to Lot, the judgment that they bring on Sodom, and the new world. You see, after judgment and destruction, you always have a new world. After the flood, there was a new world, and then Ham fell and hurt the new world, and you have Nimrod, and the world is corrupted. And here you have a new world, too. Lot has an opportunity to start anew, but the new world is corrupted, as we'll see, and that's why it says new world, question mark. All right, let's look at the arrival, Genesis 19, 1-11. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed with his face to the ground, said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we will spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people, without exception, from every quarter of the city. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now, behold, I have two daughters who have not known men. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them what is good in your sight. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shadow of my roof. But they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, This one came in as a sojourner, and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Okay, let's look at some of the themes that are here. We have two angels, we need two witnesses to make an evaluation and determine what's going to happen to the city. We find that Lot is sitting in the gate, and that always in the Bible indicates a person of some prominence. So Lot has become a person of authority. In fact, in verse 9, they say already he's acting like a judge. So Lot, in spite of the fact that he didn't share their religious beliefs, had become a person of prominence there and was sitting there in the gate of the city where the elders would sit. And when he sees the men coming, he arises and does what Abraham did. It says, Lot saw them, rose to meet them, and bowed down with his face to the ground. Well, that's parallel to what we saw in chapter 18. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men, and he ran from his tent door to meet them and bowed themselves to the earth. Now we read in chapter 19, Lot says, Behold, my lords, turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night, wash your feet, then you may rise early and go on your way. And what did Abraham say in the previous chapter? My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, don't pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Rest yourself under the tree, the shadow of Lot's house, the shade of Abraham's tree. And he says, I will bring you a piece of bread. And then he makes a feast for them. Remember, a tremendous amount of food and serves them. Well, all these parallels are designed to make us connect the two. See, Lot is like Abraham. He's a man with hospitality. And he greets the men and makes the same kind of offers to them that Abraham had done. And there's also a parallel 
Well, there are a lot of parallels and contrasts, and we'll look at them in just a minute. These men come in the evening. They had come to Abraham in the daytime, and we saw that was associated with the day of the Lord and blessing that comes because they announced the birth of the child while Sarah is standing in the door. This time they come in the evening, which will take us through the night and through a Passover-like judgment scene in the night, and as the day begins to dawn, there will be judgment. So the day of the Lord in a positive sense is in chapter 18, the new child and the new world. And the day of the Lord in a negative sense is in chapter 19, as the sun rises, the city is destroyed. Well, when Lot makes his offer, they say, no, we will spend the night in the square. And here's one of the contrasts with Abraham. The three who arrived to see Abraham, God and his two angels, they didn't resist the offer. But here there's a certain amount of resistance. And we're not told exactly why they refused Lot's offer initially. There are two possible reasons, probably both are relevant. One is they thought to spend the night in the square so they could evaluate the city. Lot knows that that would be dangerous for them. He knows what's likely to happen. So he prevails on them to come inside. The second, they're just not as ready to go with Lot. Because Lot, in his behavior, in a way he has distanced himself from righteous living, there's already some distance between Lot and God. And it's necessary for God to go a whole lot of extra miles in order to get hold of Lot and pull him back, as we'll see. Lot has moved away from the Lord, and it's necessary for the Lord to go extra distances to get hold of him. And so that estrangement probably is in view here, too. They aren't initially ready to go with Lot. Lot has to ask them a second time. And so in verse 3 it says, Lot urged them strongly, and they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them just like Abraham had prepared a feast. And they baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now here, a reference is made to unleavened bread. We're not told that Lot was commanded to make unleavened bread. It just happened that he made it. I guess that was the dish that he put together that night. This sets up parallel, obviously, with the Exodus. Now, at the time of the Exodus, they were told to make unleavened bread. Now, what did that do for them? See, we're not used to reading the Bible in order. We know these different stories, but we don't think about them in order. But now let's think about them in order. You're living in Egypt, and your elder is over ten. The elder who lives down the street from you comes and says, Word has come down from Moses and Aaron. Bake unleavened bread tonight because you're going to be leaving the city in the morning. What do you think about if you're a Jew who knows his Old Testament? Well, you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, don't you? You see... That's what you think about if you know the book of Genesis. You're a Jew, and the word comes down, bake unleavened bread because we're leaving Egypt tomorrow. You'll never see this place again. And you think, unleavened bread? Why, that's what Lot served the angels just before he was pulled out of Sodom. So God is going to destroy Egypt just like God destroys Sodom. And God is going to pull us out just like God pulled Lot out. Now, that's all we need to do with the unleavened bread. We shouldn't just go all to the rest of the Bible and find out unleavened bread means this and unleavened bread means that and push it all back in here. This is actually the first reference. But this begins to set it up. Unleavened bread is the bread of haste. And when God told the Israelites later on that they were going to come out of Egypt with unleavened bread, they would think back to this passage, and if they thought the passage through, they wouldn't have wandered in the wilderness. See, this whole passage is a prophecy. All the things that happen in Genesis kind of happen again later on in Exodus. 
And if the people who came out of Egypt had thought about the book of Genesis the right way, they wouldn't have wound up wandering in the wilderness. And that's what we'll see. Well, there's a message here for them, and similarly a message for us. All right, so we have unleavened bread, and that's a message later on for Israel as they come out of Egypt. It's the bread of haste. It's not bread of haste here, but it becomes the bread that symbolizes haste. Well, all right, after they have their feast, and it's gracious that God's angels come and have a feast with Lot, just as in an hour we will be in heaven and we'll be having a feast with God and the angels. That's gracious of them. It says, before they lay down, the men of the city, and then we are told that they're everybody in the city, representatives of every section, men of Sodom, both young and old. In other words, the young people are not going to have any excuse here. Not just those who become older and become more degenerate as the years go by, but young as well. People from every end and every quarter of the city, they all come and they want to have homosexual relations with the two supposed men. Now, the emphasis here, again, is on the doorway. They come. Lot went out to the doorway, shut the door. Then it says in verse 8, they pressed hard against Lot to break down the door. The men reached out their hands and pulled Lot in and shut the door. Then they struck them with blindness so they couldn't find the doorway. And there's a contrast here between this door and the tent door in the previous chapter. Remember, the tent door in chapter 18 had to do with birth and a new birth. See, if you pass through a door, you go from one world to another. That's all it is. There's nothing anatomical about the relationship. It's just an idea. When people get married, the husband picks the bride up and carries her across the door from the old world into a new world. And that's what a birth is, you see. And Sarah's standing at the door, and she gets the word, a new birth, a new child. You're going to get a child. You're going to have children, a new creation. What does Lot do standing at the door? Just the reverse. He takes his children and offers to let them be killed. Instead of the doorway being a place of procreation and the creation of a family and new children and new life, Lot's doorway becomes a place of death because of his inability to deal with the situation. He's got himself into a horrible jam by living in Sodom. And he doesn't know what to do, and he winds up offering the destruction of his children and the destruction of his family. And there's a contrast, you see. Now remember, at the Passover later on, there's blood on the door, and the Jews come out of those doors and go into the new world, you see. this kind of a new birth theme there, too, as you go through the doors. And that, again, connects back to here a lot. When they come out this door in the morning, they escape the city altogether. But here there's an attack. So, again, a contrast with what we saw in the previous chapter. Abraham is getting a blessing. Lot is running the risk of having his whole family destroyed here. And the language of the passage, by continually repeating this word door and doorway, calls attention to it. Well, Lot is delivered from it. He has the two daughters. He offers them but it doesn't go through because the angels take charge and deliver Lot from this situation. The angels, it says, reached out with their hands, verse 10, and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door and struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness. Now, that's not actually the word that means blindness. This doesn't make much sense, you see. If they were struck blind so that they wearied themselves to find the doorway, if you were struck blind, 
you wouldn't be standing there trying to find the doorway. You'd be scared to death, wouldn't you? I mean, here a bunch of men out here, and all of a sudden they're struck blind. They can't see anything. Well, they wouldn't be wearying themselves trying to find the door, would they? No, they'd be, I'm blind, I'm blind, you know, screaming and yelling and whatever. So that's not what this means, and it's not what it says in Hebrew. It should be translated, they struck them with bedazzlement. They were bedazzled. Their sight became so distorted that actually they weren't able to find or see the door. They could see other things round about, but they couldn't see and find the door. The same Hebrew word is used later on in Kings. There's a story where the men of Syria come marching in and they are going to attack Israel and Elisha goes out to meet them and it says the men of Syria were all struck with blindness. And then it says they were led into the city and they were led into the throne room of the Israelite king and then their eyes were opened and they realized where they were. Well, they weren't struck with blindness in the sense that they couldn't see anything. They were dazzled. They were struck with bedazzlement. And that they didn't understand what was happening to themselves. And they came into this throne room, and they didn't really recognize it was the throne room. They didn't really recognize it was the king of Israel until their eyes were opened, and all of a sudden they realized where they were. Now, this happens in the New Testament too, doesn't it? After Jesus is resurrected, people see him, and they don't know who he is until their eyes are opened. The two men on the road to Emmaus, they spend the whole evening with him. It's not until he broke bread that they realized who he was. So that's what's going on here. And it's this sight theme again. You see, sight has to do with judgment. And it said, Lot says, let me send my daughters out and do what is good in your sight to them. And then it says their sight was smitten and they couldn't see properly. Because their judgment was evil, they were unable to see properly, and the fitting punishment was that they were not able to find the door. And there's another idea here, too, I think. Lot, as a godly man, we're told in the New Testament his spirit was vexed, and we're told right here that the people kind of resented him because of his righteous judgments he'd been rendering in the gates. And Jesus says, I am the door, and standing in the doorway of the temple was a place where the truth was sounded out. And the Bible was preached to the people. And because they refused to hear the message of salvation that Lot offered them, eventually there came a time when they were not able to find the doorway at all. They wanted it for the wrong reason. And now they were not able to find it at all. It's a sign of the judgment that comes upon them. They became so morally blind that they no longer could even find the church and find the truth, even to attack it. And they were about to be destroyed. Well, in verses 7 and 8, Lot says, These men have come under the shadow of my roof. And I mentioned earlier, I think that's parallel to the shade of the tree that these men were under when they were with Abraham. And that's another parallel between the two. There's another interesting phrase that comes up here that you might take notice of. In verse 9, the men said, Stand aside. This one came in as an alien and already he's acting like a judge. Does that remind you of a passage? that connect up with anything? Moses, okay. See, we're in an Exodus-type passage here. And remember, that's what the people said to Moses initially. Who made you a judge over us? We don't need your help. Now, in verse 10, Lot is stuck in the doorway trying to keep the homosexuals from breaking it down and attacking the two angels. And it says the men reached out their hand, actually it's singular, and brought Lot into the house with them. 
This will come up again, this idea of reaching out with the hand. And just want to call attention to it here because in a few verses it will come up again. In fact, what we'll see is that Lot hesitated and wasn't even able to get out of the house. And the men had to take him by the hand and drag him out of the city. Well, that's the situation. That's the arrival. That's the judgment that's seen. And the angels now know that the city needs to be destroyed. The two witnesses have seen that there's no hope for Sodom. And the only thing to do is get Lot out of town. They have rejected the truth. They have rejected every opportunity for salvation. And they've become spiritually blind. And they can't find anything that's true anymore. So they come and they offer the gospel. You see it a lot. In verses 12 to 22, we have the gospel as it comes to Lot, the offer of salvation. Then the men said to Lot, Whom else do you have here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters, whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we're about to destroy this place, because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. And when morning dawned, here's this sunrise theme, the sun of righteousness arising in the destruction of the wicked. The angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand, and the hand of his wife, and the hands of his daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. And it came about when they had brought them outside that one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the circle of the Jordan. Escape to the mountain. It's singular here. Escape to the mountain, lest you be swept away. Swept away, flood language. Lot said, O oh, no, my lords, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You've magnified your loving kindness that you've shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountain, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it's small. Please let me escape. Is it not small that my life may be spared? And he said to him, Behold, I grant this thing also, not to overthrow this town of which you've spoken. Hurry, therefore, escape. For I cannot do anything until you get there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar, which means small. Well, there's the gospel. Let's look at some of the things that come up here that remind us of the flood as well as the exodus. You notice what's happened in verses 12 to 14? Lot has sons-in-law who'd married his daughters. Remind you of anything? Especially in the book of Genesis. See, this recapitulates, it comes back again to the flood. Genesis 6, verse 2, we read that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Sons of God there are the righteous, godly line of Seth, and the daughters of men are the unrighteous, ungodly line of Cain. But here we have mixed marriages based on false premises, marriage for the wrong reasons, not marriage in the Lord. And it's happened here again. This reversed, this time it's the daughters of the righteous marrying the sons of the ungodly, but you notice the effect is the same, that they're destroyed. 
And when the flood comes in and they're swept away, Lot's daughters that have married are swept away as well with their husbands. Mixed marriages. It doesn't work either now or then. So there's a tremendous danger. As our children get older, we have to be real careful about this. Well, so the sons-in-law made fun of it all. They thought it was ridiculous. There's not going to be any judgment. And Lot's married daughters were lost. We're not even told about Lot's sons. Apparently they were so far gone that they didn't listen either. And so all that's left to go is his two daughters who were not married and have never known a man and his wife. And so the day dawns. It's the day of the Lord. And this time it's not a day in which we're going to come and talk about the birth of Isaac. This day is going to be a day where we come and talk about the destruction of the wicked. But still there's an offer of salvation and grace that comes to Lot. The offer to go to the mountain. But before that offer is made, we read that Lot hesitated. And so the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. That's sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. Electing grace. Lot would have just not known what to do. He was so upset. He was so lacking in understanding of the moral situation around him that he didn't flee. And so the angels had to seize him by the hands and pull him out. That's comfort to us because in our lives sometimes we get into moral predicaments. We don't know what to do, but we can trust that God will seize us by the hand and indicate what we need to do, even if we don't know exactly what to do. Of course, this is a very obvious situation. And they had prevailed on him, and finally they seized his hand. And it says that they grabbed his hand because the compassion of the Lord was on him. It's God's love and his sovereign grace that causes him to take action to save Lot. Now again, the Jews could have learned from this later on, you see. When Moses came and said, let's go, and they kind of resisted it, and they said, no, who made you a judge over us? Things are getting worse and worse. We've got to make bricks without straw now. But yet God seized them by the hand, and he forced them to have to leave Egypt because Pharaoh drove them out, remember? Pharaoh drove them out of Egypt. Where did these hands come from? You know that angels have hands. Remember we said last time that angels are full of eyes. Cherubim are full of eyes. And that's why God sends them in to examine the situation. Well, the same passages that tell us that the cherubim are full of eyes, that's Ezekiel chapter 1, also tell us that they have hands. And these hands are there to help us out. Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 8, Under their wings on their four sides were human hands. Okay? And so the angels have hands, and that's why they have them, to help us out sometimes in ways that we don't even know. So in spite of Lot's hesitation, God's love was such that the angels reached forth their hands, saved him from the attack of the men of the city, and brought him and his family out. And they told him, go to the mountain. Why is there this emphasis on the mountain? Well, already in the Bible, the mountain is a symbol for God's kingdom. The Garden of Eden was on a mountain. We know that because rivers flow downhill. And there were four rivers that flowed out of the Garden of Eden, so they had to be going downhill, right? Okay. But not only is that the case, but Abraham was up on the mountain. And remember, the context here is always Abraham and Lot. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 8, way back when we started this series, we saw that Abraham had journeyed southward to the mountain on the east of Bethel 
and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there on the mountain he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So at Bethel, there was a mountain, and that's where the altar was built, and that's where Abraham and Lot worshipped God. Then they went down to Egypt, and they have an exodus, and Abraham comes out of Egypt with much spoil. And in chapter 13, when we come back out of Egypt, verse 3, we read that he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar that he had made formerly. All right? So we're back up on the mountain, Abraham's mountain where the altar is, and Lot is with him. But then Lot separates here in chapter 14. And Lot pitches his tent down to the circle of the Jordan and then pitches his tent towards Sodom. And then, of course, by now, we realize that he's living in Sodom. And now he's about to be delivered from Sodom. So what's the mountain? The mountain is where Abraham is. It's where the altar is. It's where the kingdom is. And Lot knows that. Even if we're not used to looking around the world and thinking that way, they were. And when he's told to go to the mountain, he's being told to go back to Abraham. Go back to where true worship is. Go back to God's mountain. If we look at chapter 19, verse 28, we read that Abraham rose early in the morning and went to where he stood before the Lord, and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Where is Abraham standing? On the mountain. And when the angels come to Lot and say, Go to the mountain, that means go back to Abraham Get yourself back allied with Abraham, and you'll find the blessing. But Lot doesn't want to do that. And that's the sad thing about the story. Any more than the later on the Jews wanted to, he kind of rejects the offer of the mountain. And he says, no, let me just go over here to Zoar. It's a small city. Maybe you'll spare it. Overthrow the other four cities, but leave this fifth one. This city was formerly called Bela, and now it's called Zoar. We read that in chapter 14. Four cities were destroyed, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, but Zoar was spared because Lot was there. And so, in his mercy, God says, all right, the angel says, I'll let you go there and we won't destroy that city, but get away from Sodom and Gomorrah and the other two cities or you'll be swept away. We do see also that when Christians are in a place, God will preserve that place because the Christians are there. God pulled Lot out of Sodom before he destroyed it. And once Sodom went into Zoar, God spared Zoar for the sake of Lot and his family. Well, that's the gospel. It's offered. It's sovereign grace. They lay hold on Lot and his family and they drag him out. And they say, go back to Abraham. Go to the mountain. Lot doesn't want to do it, but they still save him anyway. Okay? That's the gospel. And Lot has his opportunity now. He's out in the wilderness. Will he go to the mountain or will he die in the wilderness? Well, before we get to that, we have the judgment theme, verses 23 to 29. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. There's that emphasis on sunrise, the sun of righteousness arising, not with healing in his wings this time, but with fire and brimstone. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down, 
from this mountain place toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, there's that language of sight and evaluation and judgment. He saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the valley, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Well, just briefly, we have the day of the Lord theme again. The idea that when the sun arises and the new day dawns, God brings his judgment. He brings salvation to the faithful. He brings judgment to the wicked. A second theme that we have here is that of a memorial pillar. We don't know exactly what happened to Lot's wife. You know, people who want to kind of take the miraculous out of the Bible come up with things that she fell to the ground and then gradually over the months her body was petrified into salt. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Or maybe that pieces of salt and brimstone fell from heaven and covered her over so she just got all covered with salt. And that's all that was left to her. Personally, I think she was turned into salt because that's the simplest way to read it here and there's no particular problem with reading it that way. She became a pillar of salt and that's what we really want to focus on. What are pillars in the Bible? We've heard about them in Joshua. And you hear about them many other places. They're memorial stones. They're memorial stones. You set up a memorial pillar, and that reminds you of something. Our memorial pillar is the Lord's Supper. It reminds us, and when we do it, it reminds God. We say to the Lord, Lord, we want to remind you that Jesus died for us and that we are given salvation in him. Just as you look down, Lord, and see the rainbow, and you're reminded not to judge the earth. So, Lord, look down on this memorial that we do today and don't judge us, but instead give us the kingdom. It's a memorial for God to see, also for us to see. And so it is here. This is a memorial stone and a witness of what has happened here. And as the years go by and people go down near the Dead Sea area and they see all those big salt things sticking up around, they remember Sodom and Gomorrah and they remember Lot's wife. What happens if you turn back and you don't really want to be saved? Now, later on in history, when Israel came out of Egypt, and they had their unleavened bread, and they saw God destroy the city with the angel of death, they should remember this. If they turned back, they would be destroyed. But what did the Jews do? Did they remember this story? No, they kept saying, look, we remember the leeks and the onions and the garlics and the cucumbers and the melons, and we want to go back to Egypt. And what happened to those who wanted to go back to Egypt? Their bodies littered the wilderness, you see. They were supposed to learn from this. That's why this is an exodus. That's why there are all these parallels. That's why the story is written the way it is. Well, that was the memorial pillar to remind them. And finally, we see the idea of a whole burnt sacrifice. We see that when the fire and brimstone rained down from heaven, this whole area became like an altar, and the smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace. It's not the same language that we had in chapter 15 where God appeared as a smoking furnace passing between the parts of the animals. The words are different here, but there's some similarities. If God's consuming fire isn't put on Jesus Christ, then it's put on us. If we're not safe in him, then we get consumed. If we don't have Jesus as our whole burnt sacrifice, then we become the whole burnt sacrifice. And that's said in the Bible a number of times. When a city was wicked and had to be destroyed, it was always lit on fire. 
and turned into a whole burnt sacrifice. And we see that in Judges chapter 20, verse 40, when the city of Gibeah is burned up. It says, When the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, Benjamin looked behind them, and behold, the whole burnt sacrifice of the city was going up in smoke to heaven. And there are many other passages that speak that way. The city has become a sacrifice and has gone up to heaven. Well, finally, we come to this idea of a new world. Are we going to have a new world? Is Lot going to move to the mountain? Well, it says Lot went up from Zoar, verse 30, and stayed in the mountain. Looks good. Maybe this is the true mountain. We'll see it's not. His two daughters went with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. Learned that lesson anyway. And he lived in a cave. That's bad. He and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. There is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let's make our father drink wine. Let's lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. And they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It came about on the morrow that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let's make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. They made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami, son of Ami. Maybe Ami was her boyfriend or something. Maybe she's trying to conceal all this from her father. At any rate, Ben-Ami means the son of Ami. And he was the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. Well, it looks good that they moved to a mountain, but it's not, because we find that he's living in a cave. The cave had some good things. It had food and wine, but the cave is a sign of death. Dust thou art, to dust thou shalt return. When people start living in caves, they're living close to death. Jesus was stuck into a cave when he was dead, and that's where people were buried. When we get to Genesis chapter 23, verse 19, we'll read about the cave of Machpelah, which is where... Sarah was buried. There's a whole negotiation for a cave as a burial place. So right here in the story of Abraham, a cave is the burial place. It's where you go when you die. And when Lot and his family are living there, they're living in death. They haven't made progress. They've gone downhill. They've been delivered, but they're dying in the wilderness. Now, was incest a sin at this time? Some have said, no, well, not till Leviticus. You see, Cain and Abel would have had to marry their sisters, and Abraham married a half-sister, although that's not actually prohibited in Leviticus. But it's not till you get to Leviticus that incest is a sin. That's what some have said. It's not clear to me whether that's true or not. What is clear is that for some reason or other, these girls didn't think their father would be willing to do it, and so it probably was wrong. And they were not willing to wait for their father to find them a husband somewhere else. They seized hold of the opportunity. And this is a recapitulation of the sin of Ham. Was incest a sin at this time? We don't know, but it's clear that the daughters didn't think that Lot would go along with it, and it was sinful. But whose was the primary sin? Primary sin was Lot's. Lot had failed to provide. Lot could have gone to Abraham to get husbands for his daughters. He was told to go to the mountain. Abraham, remember, had loads of people in his household. He had all these people allied with him, Mamre and Eshcol. He was a mighty prince. They could have found husbands there, but Lot didn't do it. Instead, Lot went and holed up in a cave and became an alcoholic.
down at the bottom of your page it says the wrong mountain. And that's the idea. He didn't go and align himself with Abraham. He went to the wrong mountain and he lost it all. And that was a message to Israel later on. When you leave Egypt, go to the mountain. Go to the land of Canaan. Set up true worship. If not, you die in the wilderness. You wind up being buried in caves like Lot. And you become like Canaanites. Now, I've said, and we have to be brief, but you have it written down in your notes, that there are all kinds of parallels here to what happened after the flood. After the flood, Noah planted a vineyard. It says that Noah drank enough to get sleepy and to uncover himself in the privacy of his tent. But he didn't drink so much he didn't know what was going on. Because when Ham came in, which he had no business doing, and then he went out and said, Father's naked in the tent, and the two other brothers took the robe and they backed up so as not to see his nakedness and covered him with the robe, thus reestablishing his authority. No one knew all that was going on. So he was drowsy. This is different, you see. This isn't relaxation. It's not clear whether Noah was wrong or right, but the emphasis in the Noah passage is on the sin of Ham. Noah drank enough to get sleepy, but he did know what his sons were doing. Noah's drinking probably is associated with relaxation, the wine of communion, and not the wine of irresponsibility. Whether that's right or wrong, it's clear here that Lot drank so much that he didn't know what was happening to him. Lot's drunkenness was a retreat from the world into irresponsibility. Secondly, the nakedness was uncovered. Noah had a right to uncover his nakedness in the privacy of his tent. And Ham invaded that privacy and sought to seize the robe in order to leave Noah permanently uncovered. Uncovering nakedness means to expose to shame. Remember, Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed, and then when they sinned, they were ashamed and they had to be clothed. Lot's daughters uncover their father's nakedness in the sense of Leviticus 18, verse 7, which says that if you commit incest, you uncover nakedness. That is, exposing him to shame and seizing for themselves what should have been his decision. Just as Ham tried to seize the robe of authority from Noah, so the daughters seized the situation from their father. Instead of saying, well, let's give it time, let our father find husbands for us, they go in and they take matters into their own hands. And finally, what was the curse on Ham? That his son Canaan would be a mark of curse in the world, and they would become the Canaanites who would eventually be destroyed. And what happens to Lot's daughters? Well, their children become Canaanites because they're living like Canaanites. They commit the same sin that Ham and Canaan had committed, and they carry out this Canaanite mentality. And so Moab and Ammon are just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Instead of Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed and Lot and his family moving into a new world, all that happens is that Lot and his family extend Sodom and Gomorrah down through history and become a plague to the people of God. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah. They're compared to it. So salvation was offered to Lot. Lot himself was saved. Lot's in heaven. But because Lot didn't persevere, he died in the wilderness, and his children became just more Canaanites, more Sodomites, and received that judgment down throughout history. That's the warning here. It was the warning that Israel was supposed to learn when they came out of Egypt, and they didn't learn it. And that's why they wandered 40 years in the wilderness, and there had to be a new generation. Well, our time is up. Let's stand and pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that when we were dead in trespasses and sins, you stretched forth your hand and you called us into your kingdom. And we thank you that you called us to your mountain. And as we draw near to worship you today, help us to ascend that mountain and realize that we are in heaven. Help us not to be those who dwell in caves and pull back and start trying to live in Sodom and having a life of ease. But help us to persevere and to fight for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.